You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians, we're going to start that as we, we come into a new year and we come again to a new book once again. Uh, although, uh, in my thinking at least, uh, as we went through 1 Thessalonians, I was thinking of First and 2 Thessalonians as just one series. Uh, really, uh, with just a break in between for Christmas. Uh, but in any case, we, we turn here now to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And what, us, what I want us to be thinking about, at least for this morning, is I want us to think, what is it that determines whether or not a church is a healthy church? Uh, as we think of ourselves here, what should we be examining and thinking about to say whether or not we here at North Valley, if we're a healthy church or not? I was listening to one pastor, and, and he was talking about the many different things, the common things that, that people refer to as what makes a, a church healthy, and talked about different things that you read in different church growth and revitalization books and, and what they say is necessary and what a church is. And Now, you can accuse me of different reasons and question my motives in arguing the way that I'm going to, but you need to come with Scripture, with saying that this is what is right and true. What does the Scripture say? And so one of the things that we're often put forward, we're often told, is what makes a church healthy. And, and what, one of the things this pastor talked about is, is that a healthy church is a large church and a numerically growing church. Now, is, is that the case, necessarily? I mean, can we think of large churches that are not healthy churches, Churches that may have a lot of members and may be growing numerically, but their doctrine is shallow and faulty, and members in open sin. And we can think of small churches with godly, mature members in a congregation that is sharing the gospel and is faithful to the Word of God. Now, don't get me wrong either. I'm not saying that just because a church is a large church that it's an unhealthy church or its doctrine is faulty. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that just because it's a small church that means it's a good and healthy church either. I'm not saying that. My point is that's not the measuring stick. That's the point. That doesn't determine whether or not a church is healthy. Another thing this pastor talked about, which makes the church healthy, as they said, the facilities that the church has, or the programs that they can boast. That's a, a healthy church. And I think everything that we can say about a large or small church can be said the same about a church with a great facility and, and many uh, great programs. I'm not saying programs are bad. We have programs ourselves. But that's not what makes a church healthy. What do we see in Scripture? I'm talking about the growth of the church and over what period of time are, are we having baptisms and different things. And I mean, what do we see in the New Testament? What does that tell us 
about the churches that Paul addressed in his letters? What were the things that he commended them for and the things that he told them needed to be corrected? They're the things I think we should be looking at of what makes a healthy church. I remember reading once that one book said that if a church had under 50 attenders, that that church was already dead. Didn't say anything about those attenders and those members. But it was just about the number. And it's no wonder then that we've indulged ourselves in all kinds of tactics in the 21st century church to get people to make an easy decision for Christ and very often have ignored what biblical conversion actually is. And that in doing so, we've made it all about what we do in our tactics. And then looking to get someone to trust in Christ, we recognize that really to have conversion, that's, that's really hard. Matter of fact, it's so hard, we can't do it. It's so hard, God has to do it. It's what he does. Yes, we're called to be faithful, but we need to trust the outcome to him. And so we're thinking on and... and you know, what is a healthy church? And, and so we've been looking at the church in Thessalonica as an exemplary church, and I, I think we should still do that. We can, can continue here as we go into the second letter and look at this church that was faithful, this church that loved. And we see what Paul says about this church. We saw in the first letter. As again, we, we started off this series in First Thessalonians as lifting them up as a exemplary church for us to follow. That the Thessalonians, they were following the example of Paul and Silas and Timothy as Paul was following the example of Christ. So as they were following Paul's example, who's following Christ's example, they would then becoming more like Christ. And then if as we follow their example, the goal is that we become more like Christ. And so that's what we're, we're looking to see in us here. And so as we look at 2 Thessalonians, we should note some of the things that we discussed in 1 Thessalonians. One, just like we discussed in 1 Thessalonians, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He's the one who authored this letter, and he sent it, though, from himself and his co-workers, from Silas and Timothy. And now what extent did Silas and Timothy have in the, the writing of this letter and the sending of this letter? We don't know for sure, although we talked about and uh, we'll talk about a little more that possibly Timothy delivered that first letter. Also, there, there's much background uh, to First and Second Thessalonians that we went over in the introduction to First Thessalonians. I'm not going to recap now, but I would encourage you to go back to that sermon, that introduction to the series uh, in September. Go onto the website and you can re-listen to that and, and re-hear some of that background. But remember, again, this was a young church. Uh, when Paul was writing his first letter to this church, that may have only been a, a year or maybe even a little less than a year since him and Silas had planted the church. And this was a church that pretty much from its start faced persecution. 
If you remember, we read in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9, about the planting of that church and about the persecution they faced right off the cuff. And actually, the persecution had gotten so bad that those new believers there in Thessalonica, they felt it wise that Paul and, Tim, or Paul and Silas would escape the city under the cover of night. And so they did. And from there, Paul and Silas went to Berea. And then from there, Paul went to Athens and then to Corinth, where he stayed for 18 months. Silas and Timothy, they had gone different ways and were doing other works. But they would all eventually meet up again there in Corinth. And when Timothy would come to Corinth, he would come from Thessalonica. And he would come with a report about the church. See, because Silas and Paul, they were concerned about the Thessalonians, this young church. They were concerned about them because as new believers, they were facing such heavy persecution. And so they wanted to know, were they holding up under that persecution? Were they persevering in their faith? And they had concern. And so when they couldn't take it any longer, they sent Timothy to find out how they were doing. And so Timothy comes back, meets Paul there in Corinth, and he has news about the Thessalonians. And it was overall good news that this young church was persevering. They were holding up under the persecution. And so Paul com- or Timothy comes and tells Paul about their faith and love. And this good report from Timothy prompted Paul to write the first letter that he did. Now, this church, again, remained faithful, but that does not mean there weren't still also issues that needed to be corrected. And so there were some things in Timothy's report that came back that Paul had to address, and he addressed it in that letter. And it's obvious, though, that even though the majority of the church was growing in their sanctification, that there were those who needed to have addressed different areas of sin like sexual immorality and love for one another. And it also would seem that Paul had to address some misconceptions about what happens to those in the church who died before Christ returned. And so in that, then, he addressed the idea of, or the understanding, the teaching of, the rapture. Then, whether there was some question about the timing of events related to the day of the Lord, Paul then got into the idea and the fact that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It will come unexpectedly. And so he warned of those who would be swept away in judgment, without warning, without seeing it coming. And so he warned the Thessalonians that that wasn't them. They were not intended for wrath, and so they should not live as if they were ones who would be swept away in judgment. Instead of living in darkness, they should live as children of the light. There was a difference between them and the unbelievers. Their destination was different, and so their lives should also be different. And so we saw that in the first letter. We also saw in the first letter Paul's commendations of Timothy to the Thessalonians. And we asked the question, if Paul is writing after Timothy has just returned from the Thessalonians, why is he writing and commending Timothy to them? And we said, well, it seems that it could be the case that he plans on sending Timothy back to them. 
and probably to deliver the letter he was writing and to continue to check up on them. So I think we can understand that that's likely the case, though we can't know for sure. And if that is what happened, then it's probably true then that Timothy's the one who returned again to Paul with a second report about the Thessalonians, which then would prompt Paul to write his second letter. Now, some argue Paul wrote this letter while he was in Ephesus, the second letter to the Thessalonians. But if he was in Corinth for 18 months, that would give him plenty of time to have written both letters while he was there in Corinth. And most hold to that, that that's where Paul must have been when writing 2 Thessalonians. And so he probably wrote this letter around the end of 51 AD or the beginning of 52 AD. And again, we see Paul's first letter as mainly an encouragement to a suffering church, suffering under persecution, although he also did bring some correction. Now, in the first part of the letter Paul sent to encourage the believers, to encourage them under persecution, we see that in the second letter as well, but Mainly what we see in this letter is that Paul wrote to correct different things about the church. We see that more so here in the second letter. And if we divide this letter up into three parts, we see the first part, again, is meant to encourage the believers in light of God's justice, his ultimate justice in the last day, in order that they may persevere under the persecution they faced. And the second session, section was to correct false teaching that had risen in the church that the day of the Lord had already come and that they were in the midst of judgment. It seems that either there was some misconception on what Paul had taught about the last days or that false teachers or that a letter arrived to the church claiming to be from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. If you would, turn to chapter 2 really quick. Now, and we see this in the first two verses there, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And then Paul goes on to explain why the day of the Lord could not have come yet. And so he's bringing correction to this false teaching that in some way has come into the church. And he corrects it as he wants the church to stand firm in their faith and to continue to persevere. But if they're frightened, if their faith is shaken, how then can they stand firm? See, false teaching is a dangerous thing, and it has dangerous consequences. And so false teaching is something that absolutely needs to be confronted. And it must be dealt with by the truth of God's word. And God's people must be pointed to the truth and must follow the truth of God's word. We should be able to recognize false teaching when we hear it, when we come across it, as we compare what God's word says to it. 
and therefore be able to identify it and, and distinguish it from something that is, is something that we, we sh- can just kind of wrestle over and yet not have to separate over or something that isn't worth talking about. We need to be able to distinguish false teaching that we must go after, that we must confront with those things. And we must do it with God's word. And as we think of these first two sections, with again, again, Paul encouraging the Thessalonians with the truth of their hope in the future victory and reward and coming judgment. And then as he corrects false teaching concerning the day of tribulation, we see then that two-thirds of this letter focus on end times theology. And then the last third of the letter, Paul deals with those in the church who whose actions or lifestyle needs to be corrected. Those who need to be rebuked. Those who are not living disciplined lives and those who are not working and so were mooching off others when they themselves could have been and so should have been working. And yet even despite the issues that were here in this church, even despite the things that Paul needed to be corrected, this church was still a church that could be looked up to. It was a church that others could learn from and follow as an example, even in their imperfections. Even as we see the things that Paul corrects, we can learn from that to understand that we should not fall into those follies. Or we should understand them and see in our own lives, is that correction that I need? And so then turn away from it as Paul directed the Thessalonians. And so my prayer is as we go through this that we'll continue to learn and grow because of what Paul wrote to them and how Paul presents the Thessalonians. And so let's get into the book now. Let's, let's start reading here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, if you would read with me, verses 1 through 4. Paul Silvanus, and remember in 1 Thessalonians we talked about Silvanus. He is the one called Silas there in uh, Acts 17. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the affliction that you are enduring. So like we've already said, this letter is sent from Paul, who is the one who authored the letter, and it's sent from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And it's sent to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we see this greeting, it's almost, not quite, there's some minor differences, but it's almost identical to the greeting that we see there in 1 Thessalonians. And so again, it shows us that this letter is aimed at believers. This greeting is showing that Paul believed the church was made up of believers, like we talked about in Sunday school. And so the church should be made up of believers. As Paul writes to this church, he's writing to those, again, as believers, who therefore then have their source, have their life 
in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this takes these gathered people there in in Thessalonica having responded to the gospel in repentance and faith. And that's exactly what they did. And we read of their repentance in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, when it says that they turned to God from idols to serve, no longer serving their idols, no longer in the practices and, and the, the immorality that went along with their paganism, but no, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their faith, their hope, was clearly in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone as ours too must be. So again, they, as all believers are, were in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul greeted them with grace, God's unmerited favor, and with peace. So like I said, for the most part, this greeting is is almost identical with some minor differences to the greeting that's there in 1 Thessalonians. But there is one major difference that we should see and point out. That twice in this greeting, Paul refers to God the Father as our Father. And that's exactly who he is. As the church together... God is our Father. All of us, He is our Father. We are His children. We have been adopted into the family of God through Christ Jesus. And so we are brothers and sisters in Christ with God as our Father. Not not everyone can say that. Uh, There's a sense in which God is everyone's Father and that He created everyone and everyone has their physical life and source in Him. Their existence comes from Him. But in the relationship as a father and child, not everyone can say God is their father. That we are only adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, again, as we continue through this, there's so much about this church uh, that we should look up to and we should follow their example. In the first letter, Paul said how he, Silas, and Timothy continued to give thanks to God for them when they remembered them in prayer. Here again, Paul expressed his, Silas's, and Timothy's gratitude for them to God. As we read there, verse 3, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. And when Paul says, We ought always to give thanks, the Greek word there for ought is a word that refers to a moral obligation. He was saying they were morally obligated to give thanks to God. So if they didn't give thanks, it was wrong. See, Christians have so much to be thankful for. And so a Christian who fails to be full of gratitude, really, that's a crime. And if this lack of gratitude is the pattern of their lives, it could bring into question whether they truly are a Christian. Because how can a Christian, a true Christian, who recognizes that all he or she has and is and all that is in their life is only by the grace of God, and yet still fail to lack gratitude? 
How can we recognize what we truly deserve from God in our sin? And yet he gives us life. He forgives us. He puts us in the body of Christ. He works in us. And so in all of the things that we have that we should be grateful for, not the least of which should be when we see God working in each one of us. That should cause us to be grateful for each other. Because, again, we're a family, right? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We love each other. So if we see God working in each one's life, producing His work and the fruit of salvation in each one, aren't we grateful for that? Aren't we full of gratitude for that? We should be. Matter of fact, to the point of if we're not grateful, it's wrong to not be grateful. Gratitude is a moral obligation. Now, saying that way, saying that it's an obligation, it's a duty, that in no way means that it is a joyless, arm-twisting thing to be grateful. That's not the case at all. That certainly was not the case for Paul. He was certainly full of joy in his gratitude and expressing that gratitude. And notice, too, he is grateful for the work he sees in the Thessalonians. But his gratitude is not aimed at the Thessalonians. He's grateful for them. He's grateful for that work. He's grateful for their faith and love. But he's grateful to God for them. Because it's God who is the one working this faith and love in them. It is the work of God. It's not their own work. It's not their own efforts. It's not because they were so good in of themselves. It's because of what God had done in and among them. You know, we should express our gratitude to each other, encourage each other when we see God working in each other's lives and tell each other how grateful we are to see those things. That would be an encouragement to each other, and we should do that. But all the while, our encouragement is not to each other, or excuse me, our gratitude is not to each other. Our gratitude is for one another, but to God, because it's his work. It's what he is doing. So let us be grateful to God for one another and what he is producing in us. And just like Paul expressed in his first letter of his gratitude for the work of God among them and how it was evident in them, he explains that his gratitude for them here in this letter was because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. As was the case in his first letter, Paul had heard again about their faith and love. He was grateful. But they, they had this faith and love even under persecution. That their faith was growing abundantly. And that the love of the whole church, the love of each individual, was increasing for one another. And again, in the midst of persecution, they were growing in their love. We're not facing persecution right now. Are we growing in our love for one another right now? No, we may not be growing in not be, not be facing persecution, but there may be other things going on in our lives, other afflictions. There was other afflictions and trials going on for the Thessalonians too, as we'll see in verse 4. 
And sometimes when we're under pressure, whether because of persecution or something else, that pressure can make us a little fussy and a little, you know, can cause people to more easily get under our skin. And we can get more frustrated with people when we're feeling pressure in in different ways. And so when life is hard, instead of growing in love towards one another, we can be growing with the grumpies towards one another. But again, we see in this church that even under persecution, whatever other afflictions they had going on, they were growing in love. And so are we growing in love? Even as there are different levels of maturity and, and different ones and different places in their walk with Christ among us, do, do we bear with one another? Do we seek the best for each other? To show the grace of God that was shown to us, do we show it to one another? What does it look like even to increase in love for one another? Well, it looks like becoming more and more like Christ, really, ultimately. It means looking out for the best interest of others. It's not just warm sentiment, although I would argue that we don't want to throw out our feelings for each other altogether. But even if I do not feel as though I love you, do I love you in what I do? Do I, I want what is best for you? And if we truly love each other like this, we'll be committed to each other. And that's necessary in being the church and being the body of Christ. We'll continue to strive to gather together and serve each other with the the giftedness God had given to us by His grace. We'll forgive each other. We'll work with one another. We'll rejoice when someone else is praised and lifted up and we'll mourn with those who mourn. We'll be all about the other more and more and less about ourselves. And as we grow in our love for one another, we'll see that it's not just common interest that brings us together. It's not just because we all agree that baseball is the greatest sport there ever has been. And I know we all agree. But we are bound together because of our faith in Christ. It's Christ who brings us together. And that through faith in Christ, our life, our source is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what binds us. That's what unites us. That's what spurs on our love. That we would grow and increase in love for one another. And this increase in faith and love is exactly what caused Paul to boast about the Thessalonians to other churches. As we see there in verse 4. And so he set the Thessalonians before other churches as an example to follow. He told the Thessalonians that he bragged about them for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. He sees the work of God in them, even under persecution. Under persecution, their faith was abounding and they were steadfast. In persecution, they didn't retreat. They weren't asking the question, is this worth it? No, they were saying, it is worth it. Christ is worth it. Even if I suffer for Christ, he's worth it. 
Their faith was abounding. They were growing. This is the evidence of true saving faith. True saving faith is a persevering faith. A faith that continues to grow even in the face of persecution. And not only persecution, but obviously, again, they had other things going on as well. As he says, that their, their persecution and in affliction. And the word affliction here, it indicates all kinds of troubles and heartaches. All kinds of things that they could be facing, and yet their faith was growing. These new believers, their faith was growing, and they were remaining firm. Again, this is the evidence of true saving faith. This is the evidence of the supernatural work of God in and among these believers. And whatever we face, if persecution is truly on the rise against God's church, and whatever happened in 2020, and whatever 2021 might bring, if the Lord does not appear for His church, will our faith endure? Will we see a supernatural work of God here in North Valley? Will be evident here among us? Is our faith here, and will our faith here continue to grow abundantly? And will each one of us have a love for one another that is increasing? And I say, well, how can I know? We're not facing persecution right now. And, and maybe you're saying, well, life's been pretty, pretty good for me so far. So how, how can I know with everything that I've faced? Well, well, how has your faith been growing and your love increasing even now? How can we know? Are you standing tall now? Do you see the evidence of God working in you? And whatever affliction or trouble you have gone through, how, is, how have you responded in your faith? Can we here now say that we see the evidence of God working among us? And if we do, then like Paul, we should be grateful to God for that work. And so much so, again, we're morally, morally obligated to give thanks. And so let's praise Him and let's give Him thanks. Let us examine ourselves that we know that in our individual lives we see the work of God and the evidence of such a great salvation. Knowing our salvation and the evidence of it is not our own work, but the work of God in us. That each of us are sinners who deserve to be eternally excommunicated from the grace of God to only know the wrath of God. And yet we know God sent His Son for us. Jesus Christ came to be our representative, the representative of all who would have faith in Him. That He lived a righteous life in the place of our sinful lives. That He suffered the just penalty of our sin and shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He died the death that we should die, but He did not stay dead. He rose again. And He is alive today. So if you will turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, and in Jesus Christ alone, you will be saved. My friend, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, I plead with you today 
Trust in Him. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what walking out that door holds. Trust in Jesus. Know Him as your Savior. And whatever time He gives you to continue on in this life, live for His glory. Live in the joy of the salvation that He has provided. Live for your God. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, let us know that this is who we are as we gather here. The church saved by God through Jesus Christ. And as we continue in this series in Second Thessalonians, let us look to this church as an example for us to follow. Let us, by God's grace, be a church that is increasing in faith and love. And that we would continue on steadfast in our faith. That even if we face persecution and whatever affliction might come, we would endure. We would tolerate, as Paul says there at the end of verse 4. No matter what 2021 brings. Let our response show that we are truly a healthy church. Because God is working in us to make us a faithful church. Now let us give God all the thanks and the glory. Let us give Him the thanks because it's His work in us. It's only by His grace that we are here. It's only by His grace that we are what we are, not because of anything about us. And we see that clearly as we see that the Thessalonians were not a perfect church. There were issues there that needed to be corrected. It wasn't because of anything about them. It's all God's work was His grace. And it's His grace for us as well. We're only here by His grace. And so let us seek God. Let us depend upon God. Let us trust God for His work in us and give Him all the thanks and all the glory that He alone deserves. We're so grateful that we serve such an awesome and gracious God who is willing to work in us. Even if all, with all of our imperfections, with all the things that we still need to work through and get corrected, He is so kind to be willing to work in us. And so let's give him the thanks and the praise. 2020 for many was a harsh year. And as Ken said before, we have no clue what 2021 is going to be. But we know the grace of our God. We know the great hope and salvation that he has given us. And so let's be thankful. And let's be thankful for the work he does in each one of us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.